Thanks for coming along tonight, folks, where we're discussing the issue of housing affordability, what is to be done. So welcome to those in the room here at 47 Phillips Street, Sydney, and to those on Zoom and those who will be watching elsewhere. Uh, so we have two speakers tonight, and I'll introduce them briefly. We're going to start with Joe Gersh, who is Executive Chairman, Gersh Investment Partners Limited. Among many other things, he was appointed by the Turnbull Government to the ABC Board, by the Keating Government to the Federal Airports Corporation Board. He was appointed by Peter Costello and renewed by Wayne Swan as Treasurer or Treasurers to the Reserve Bank Australian Payment Systems Board. Um, and um, he's, of course, in an honorary capacity, a member of the Sydney Institute Board. Uh, everything around the Sydney Institute is pretty honorary, so... Uh, we can afford him. And then Linda Scott, who uh, ABC, I'm sorry, <laughs> ALP councillor on the City of Sydney, uh, previously a Deputy Prime Minister of the City of Sydney, President of um, the Australian Local Government Association, in which capacity she sits occasionally when, when required on the National Cabinet when the, uh, when the associations called in for those discussions. Um, and so we'll start off with Joe Gersh. We'll go to Linda Scott. Questions, discussion. Um, off we go. Ben? Well, I'd like to thank the um, Sydney Institute, my friends, um, Jared and Anne Henderson, who um, I've been proud to support as a board member for over 20 years for the opportunity to try to say something useful about housing affordability. It was Mark Twain who famously said, everybody talks about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. <laughs> and so until recently, the same might have been said of housing affordability. Everybody talked about housing affordability, but nobody had done anything particularly useful about it. Of course, all of that has changed to the point at which it can be said, I think, that the issue of housing affordability may well determine the outcome of the next federal election. So, not surprisingly, federal and state governments have weighed in with major plans. The federal government's National Housing Accord targets 1.2 million new homes by 2029. The Victorian government has just announced a target of 80,000 new dwellings per year. The New South Wales government has announced a similar objective, 75,000 dwellings. To achieve the federal government's 1.2 million new home target implies, on average, 240,000 across 240,000 new homes in each of the five years of the target. But housing starts for the June quarter this year were 40,720, a decade low number. Housing starts are expected to fall from 172,000 in the current financial year to 154,000 in financial year 24. This will give you an idea of the magnitude of the challenge. Housing demand has, of course, been accelerated by a number of factors, including, of course, a planned one and a half million uh, immigration surge over the next five years. In the year to 30 September 2023, 
our population grew by an unprecedented 2.5%, 654,000 people of whom it was estimated 80% were immigrants. So, to answer the question posed by the Sydney Institute, what is to be done? What will work? In the short time that's available, I'd like to make five main points. First, our governments are on the right track approaching the affordability issue from the perspective of supply rather than with demand initiatives. Second, although part of the solution, government is in fact a larger part of the problem. Third, the argument over up or out is a false binary. Fourth, as Australians accept a paradigm shift to renting as a permanent rather than a temporary housing solution, the need is to develop creative new ways to add supply, as well as to establish a tax and regulatory system to support it. And fifth, we should embrace immigration and not try to shrink the solution to fit the problem. To deal with each, supply versus demand. Until relatively recently, demand-type responses were the usual response of government. For example, first home buyer grants, stamp duty concessions and other purchaser incentives. Time and again, economists warned that in a supply-constrained environment, demand-side incentives would simply drive up prices. I know this from first-hand experience. Faced with, say, a $5,000 government incentive in a buoyant, meaning supply-constrained market, a rational developer will increase lot prices by the same $5,000. I've seen it happen, and why wouldn't it? Of course, not all demand-side responses are as blunt. Schemes in which the government, for example, tops up a purchaser's deposit and shares in the equity of the home can be effective. But these schemes are expensive and complex and therefore limited. So the federal government and state governments in particular have belatedly pivoted to a series of measures to address supply. Too many to detail here. But principal amongst these is higher density living, particularly around transport nodes, and streamlining planning processes for particular types of development. Some of these initiatives make sense, some do not. I'll elaborate a little later. So much for government as part of the solution. Let me turn to government as part of the problem. It is estimated that 40% of the cost of a completed home is it attributable one way or the other to government. Every tax, every fee, every surcharge, every bureaucratic delay, be it state or federal or local, every external referral, every control such as environmental heritage or otherwise, every appeal process, every new and creative tax, windfall tax, vacant property tax, foreign pur purchaser surcharge or whatever adds to the cost of housing and is ultimately borne by the consumer. This is not to argue for or against necessarily any particular tax or control. It's simply to state a fact. But is the cure worse than the disease? 
Streamlining the planning process is a polite way often of saying the stripping of saying stripping planning powers away from local government and transferring it to state government authorities. This is proposed in one way or another in both Victoria and New South Wales. No doubt our co-panellists this evening will have something to say about this, although the Sydney City Council is in a slightly different position being exempted. The experience of most developers has been that there is a six to 18 month delay whilst an approval that will ultimately be granted on appeal is refused by local government because of elected councillors' fear of backlash from what are now known as NIMBYs. Not in my backyard. Councillors use this process to look like they are heeding their constituents whilst blaming the appeal tribunal for the inevitable outcome. In the meantime, six, 12 or 18 months or longer has been lost, delaying and adding to the cost of much needed housing stock. But the solution proposed, of course, may create its own problems. The first is one of design. The state governments are offering developers in one form or another a more streamlined planning process or even planning concessions in exchange for including social and affordable, house, social and affordable housing within their developments. <clears throat> if you accept my earlier proposition, you will agree that the cost of this trade-off will be borne in the end by the developer, which means by other buyers in that development. Is this likely to make housing more or less affordable for most people? The second problem is one of implementation. Will the state government authorities be any better resourced and more nimble than the current local authorities in practice, given, amongst other things, the dearth of qualified and experienced professionals to deal with applications? Might there be a better way, for example, such as limiting appeal rights? And of course, planning system delays are only one component of the 40% of cost attributable to government. What of the other fees, taxes and charges? This is a huge subject. Let me speak tonight about, briefly, about the largest of these, stamp duty. Stamp duty is a fundamentally flawed tax. It adds hugely to the cost of housing. Is it, a it is a tax on labour mobility. Is it, it is a tax on upsizing and a tax on downsizing. It had one virtue that is simply raised, but even this has been muddied by imposing it on commercial agreements and partnerships between landowners and developers, which don't involve transferring the land. And it has been distorted by imposing on foreign purchases and then exempting, in some instances but not all, and in a discretionary fashion, overseas capital providers. And yet state governments have become addicted to this tax and tentative about exploring more broadly based options. And of course, increasing the GST and eliminating unproductive state taxes is and has for many years been off the agenda, at least for now. The third issue, greenfill versus infill, up or out. The key insight from state government plans announced recently in Victoria and New South Wales is that these governments 
plan to increase affordability by increasing supply, thus encouraging competition. Economics 101. Yet the Victorian government has, for example, deliberately slowed down and under-resourced its planning system for the growth areas, representing 50% of new home purchases in pursuit of its ambition to change the ratio to 70-30 in favour of urban densification. This must drive up the scarcity value and hence the price of growth area landlots. There can be no other outcome. Why has it done so? In many of his speeches before stepping down as Victorian Premier, our former Premier Dan Andrews argued it was because we, quote, can't keep building roads, hospitals and schools. You might ask, what else are state governments supposed to do except build roads, hospitals and schools? The idea that the state's finances have been so mismanaged as to limit its capacity to perform core responsibilities for which contributions have in many cases already been collected and not spent is seriously an indictment. And the arguments about infrastructure, although true at the margin, are somewhat bogus. A given number of additional students in an area, infill or growth, will require the same number of schoolrooms. A given catchment of patients will require the same number of beds. Urban roads themselves have limited capacity. Traffic is already a serious problem. To meet the requirements of a rapidly growing population, we need to build both up and out. And we need to do so at a rate which has hitherto we have not been able to achieve. There's nothing wrong with setting objectives, even 70-30, if that's thought desirable. But are those objectives to be achieved by encouragement or coercion? Housing needs to be of a type and in a place where people want to live. It's unreasonable to expect, say, an immigrant family with two or three children and aspirations for a backyard and proximity to their work and their community to move to a two-bedroom flat in the inner city because that's where the state government wants them to live. We need to be practical and not ideological about this. There is a policy to encourage medium density residential development near transport nodes, for example, railway stations. This is a sensible and practical solution in urban areas. It does not translate to the growth areas 20 or 30 or 40 kilometers from the CBD. In one instance in which I've been involved professionally, it was proposed to actually backzone land already designated for small residential lot, lots and medium density housing so as to require six-storey apartments. Small problem. There isn't a viable six-storey apartment within a 20-kilometre radius of this land and the railway, question in, the railway station in question, of course, hasn't yet been built. And consider this. Lateral thinkers have long recognised that a key solution to land supply and housing affordability lies with transport infrastructure, particularly fast rail. It is the key to regional growth. And yet Australia's financial architecture has not allowed it to be built. In the meantime, the demand for housing lots and townhouses remains unsatisfied and prices are bound to increase. 
In other words, a policy which will lead to the precise opposite of what is intended to achieve. I've spoken thus far about housing affordability from the perspective of home ownership. But what about Australians as renters? Traditionally in Australia, renting was considered a temporary phenomenon. The aspiration was home ownership. This has been turned on its head by the step change in housing costs, but also by lifestyle choices. This has led to the creation of a new asset class built to rent and a growing variant on the theme, land leasing, whereby the land is leased long term, but the house itself is purchased. There are many factors which make these sectors investable or otherwise. Some are outside the scope of this presentation. But the one thing that is certain to stall the progress of these innovative ways of addressing housing affordability in the future and others such as co-living is the introduction of government intervention risk. Cue the Greens. Let's accept that the Greens generally have a tenuous grasp of economics. But back, back on planet Earth, or at least so much of it as in, is inhabited by free markets underpinned by private property, the only way to reduce rents or at least limit rental increases is to increase the supply of available rental accommodation. And the base requirement condition for an investor is a predictable market-determined rental scream, stream. Nothing else will make rental accommodation as an asset class investable or financeable, let alone attractive. What do the Greens propose? Rental freezes, rental caps, or in its latest iteration, the Greens candidate for the Brisbane City Council has proposed a 750%, let me repeat that, 750% rate increase to any investor who increases their tenant's rent. In other words, sovereign risk, writ large. I haven't in this paper spoken about social housing, public housing, community housing, by which I mean rental accommodation provided by the government or subsidised by the government and provided by not-for-profits. This is not to diminish this sector. It's vitally important. But just to acknowledge that with the best of intentions, there is a finite limit to what the government can afford to provide and that well into the future, 80 or 90% or more of housing accommodation will be provided by the private sector. Finally, I'd like to touch on immigration and what I've called previously the shrunken imagination. Much has been said about immigration in the context of the housing debate. Let me make it clear, I'm not advocating against immigration. To the contrary, it's immigration that's fueled our economic growth, enhanced our security, and facilitated our rich multicultural society. But if we don't treat all of the steps which are being proposed with urgency and creativity and translate them into direct and immediate action, we may have to consider slowing down our rate of immigration, as suggested by my good friend Peter Costello in today's financial review. But that would be against our longer term interests and a serious admission of failure on the part of our leaders. We cannot afford a failure of imagination to let us down. Australia has overcome greater challenges in the past and with determination, cooperation and innovation, 
we will overcome this one. Jared and Anne, if I've learned anything over the past few weeks, is that it's a lot easier to attend a Sydney Institute lecture than to write one. <laughs> so I'd like to acknowledge all of the speakers that I've heard over the past 20 years for the effort they've made and to the Institute for publishing them. I hope mine has also been a useful contribution. Thank you. Many thanks, Joe. So, Linda Scott. Thank you so much. Uh, I'd like to begin by acknowledging that we meet tonight on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to their elders past and present. And also say thanks to Anne and Jared for the wonderful invitation. I'm so grateful to be here with you all tonight. And thanks to Joe for those very wise words. And I'm sure it will go down as one of the very best Sydney Institute contributions. So thank you for thinking that through. Just on the road here, as a City of Sydney councillor, uh, we are governing still a huge number of planning decisions, although less, many less than when I began as a councillor here 11 years ago. A little bit further down the road in Piermont, uh, at the last election, I was door knocking as one does and door knocked on the door of this wonderful woman who, when she opened the door and I introduced myself as a Labor councillor, said, oh, come in. This is Anthony Albanese's childhood home. Come and have a look around. It's still in its original form, a beautiful public housing unit, just uh, again, very close to here, where our Prime Minister grew up in a council-owned home with his single mother. It was beautiful to see it in its original form, although it really was in need of some maintenance, much like our public housing around the state of New South Wales but also a stark reminder that up until quite recently, local governments really did invest, own, run, manage, maintain quite a large asset base of public and affordable housing. Indeed, the City of Sydney still owns quite a few properties. Sadly, many of them have laid vacant for many years due to needing maintenance. Extraordinary when we have a $100 million surplus with our budget. But nevertheless, a reminder that it is in recent history the case that all levels of government have played a really significant role in providing housing for Australians that needed it the most. And that's where I'd like to speak about and focus my comments on tonight. It is of course the case, as Joe has rightly outlined, that to get the supply of affordable housing correct, indeed to get the supply right, we have to focus on all the levers that we can together. And it is also the case that every level of government has a very important role to play in that. It's why on behalf of local governments across Australia, all 537 of them, we were really proud recently to sign up to the National Housing Accord because it is really critical that local governments have a say. It is also really critical that we are part of the joint decision making with all our First Ministers across the states and territories uh, and of course with the Commonwealth Government to deliver on the kinds of housing supply that we need to see to resolve Australia's housing crisis. And of course, local governments have an important role to play in this because we are the placemakers. 
We are the level of government that people turn to in times of crisis and we are also the level of government that people turn to every day. I did an unfortunate radio interview on the ABC this week. Jared, I know you'll be disappointed, so I do apologise. But in doing that, uh, I spoke about the fact that as a local government councillor, Many of my constituents know where I live. Indeed, many of them lock, knock on my door uh, mornings, evenings, weekends and uh, speak to me about their concerns. Uh, many people contacted me after that interview and said, you must be joking, that doesn't actually happen to you. <laughs> yes, it does happen all the time. Uh, but it shows you just how very grassroots we are at the local level. But what does that mean? It means that uh, we have those community interests very much at the forefront of what we're thinking about when we consider the kinds of planning decisions where we still have powers to do that. It also means that we need to consider the communities who are not yet in homes, and I meet many of those people and have done so on a very regular basis in the course of my term here in the City of Sydney. And both of those constituencies, people who are lucky enough to own or live in a home and many of those who are not, we need to consider, just like the 50,000 people here in New South Wales on the public housing waiting list, we need to consider all of those people in our housing decisions and reforms. Let me say two things very clearly up front. We do have a national housing crisis. I think it is important to say that very transparently. It's important to acknowledge that we have a very significant problem. And let me say, as a second important point, I'm a self-confessed YIMBY, not a NIMBY, and have been for some time. Uh, since my first term on the City of Sydney Council, I've proudly moved motion after motion about the need for the City of Sydney to play a bigger role in considering our role in addressing housing affordability. From calling out the state government to try and better plan around vacancies to many, many more actions that the City of Sydney could take, it's important that all local governments should be actively thinking and planning and supporting the homes that we need for the future. And that's certainly something that I try to bring every day to my role in the peak body for local government. We need to do better though. And we hope that the housing accord is really a very important first step. It is also important though to call out that local governments can't do this alone. And we certainly can't do it without funding. Nationally, councils raise 3.3% of total taxation through rates. But of course, our infrastructure responsibilities, local roads, bridges, pedestrian and cycle networks, often in the region's local water utilities and sewerage, stormwater, water management, buildings, facilities, regional airports and aerodromes, parks, cultural and recreational centres, family and community support facilities, aged care, childcare, the list goes on endlessly. We provide the infrastructure and services that are really, really vital to ensure that our communities can live, they can exist, they can continue to have a wonderful life in their region. I've only today come from a local government conference here in New South Wales with our state's 128 local governments and spent some time with the Mayor of Kiama, who spoke to me at length and with great passion about 
their very difficult financial challenge of running aged care in their town. Something that if it closes will mean that many, many families will not be able to either continue to live where they live or continue to live within a reasonable distance from the person that they love in aged care. And yet the financial sustainability of that council because of that aged care service is absolutely under threat. It is a very, very diffi difficult challenge that they face. And so local governments do seek to collect infrastructure contributions as part of the development process. And we do that proudly and transparently in order to ensure that we can provide livable communities built around the housing that we seek to allow to be built. We recently negotiated on behalf of Australia's local governments for the federal government to establish a $500 million infrastructure fund. We hope that that will open for local and state applications either late this year or early next year. And it will allow local governments to, for the first time in a very long time, have a federal funding stream to ensure that we can start to think about other mechanisms for funding that infrastructure. We can all in this room, and I'm confident there'll be as many different opinions as there are people, debate about the taxation and revenue generation mechanisms that we need for this local infrastructure. Indeed, when Minister King announces her infrastructure reforms tomorrow, I'm confident that I'll be debating her about a number of matters. We can all debate how best these taxation structures work. But nevertheless, it is a very welcome development for local governments to have this $500 million fund. We hope it will become an annual fund to allow us to invest in and attract funding for the infrastructure that we need to build these houses. These infrastructure developments are important and it's important that we talk about these upfront as part of any housing reforms because without them, communities are unlivable. I have, as I'm sure many of you have seen, endless stories of homes without access to transport and people already struggling to access employment struggle further as they live in places that don't allow them a sustainable access to employment. I've seen homes approved, particularly in regional New South Wales, with poor sustainability conditions, meaning that again, Residents moving into these homes have to pay astronomical energy bills living in an unsustainable home. These kinds of things can all really be prevented upfront by good planning. And I've also seen poorly considered approvals for housing, which meant that in the case of Mascot Towers here in Sydney, or in a series of apartments built out in Moree, where the sand is very, the, the soil is very fertile and soft. Uh, I've seen people invest in housing and lose their life savings because these dwellings are of incredibly poor condition uh, and they end up with a completely worthless asset that they have invested their life savings into. So my message to you tonight, if I leave you with nothing else, is that in planning, in the supply of affordable housing, it's important to consider the economic factors. And Joe has outlined them really articulately. But it's also important to go into the weeds. The details matter. 
And that's why local governments must continue to have a role to play in planning and approval processes. There are really different laws and conditions and regulations around the nation. As I said, when I first started here in the City of Sydney, we were considering both zoning and development applications. Now we have a planning panel to do uh, development applications we still make from time to time when not delegated zoning decisions. For Northern Territory local governments, they've not had planning powers for many years. They don't seek them and the state, uh, or rather, sorry, the Territory government takes care of those matters for them. So there's very different systems around the nation. But generally, when there are local governments involved, you do get better quality outcomes to create an outcome, to create the supply, to create the delivery of quality housing, and that is really critical. Without that step, it tends to be overlooked. And it's not to say there's not barriers, and it's not to say that local governments can't significantly improve. So I wanted to leave you with this when governments are thinking about how to address this problem. We recently conducted a workforce survey of local governments with funding and support from the former federal government. And the top skill shortages, it won't surprise you to know that local governments are having significant difficulty recruiting are planners and engineers. There are many examples of councils exploring innovative mechanisms, sharing staff resources across regions, traineeships, and with support from state planning departments, councils now have been able to achieve planning uh, being on the skills shortage list. A 2023 report by the Planning Institute of Australia found that 232 local governments in Australia had no planners on staff. I'm gonna say that again. 232 local governments in Australia had no planners on staff. There's only 537 local governments. That's 43% of our local governments unable to attract or retain planning staff. So we were very pleased to see the National Planning Reform Blueprint endorsed by National Cabinet in August 2023, committing to adequately resourcing building environment professionals, including plans, planners in local government. It's no secret that when we announce our budget priorities for the federal government, again, when they consider their federal budget next year, the workforce shortages and funding and support for local governments to help with this will be very, very high up the priority list. We welcome uh, the opportunity to work with all levels of government and welcome, again, the new funding that the federal government and we hope around the nation, states, territories begin to more readily put on the table to support the delivery of more housing and more affordable housing through the Housing Accord. Uh, we know in general that there will be a push, as there is consistently, to strip powers from local governments. And uh, we know that here in New South Wales, of course, the Premier has not yet done that. He uh, continues to threaten to do that, as have more Premiers than I can count here in New South Wales and almost every other jurisdiction in the nation. Uh, local governments continue to do all we can to try and plan through these uh, political discussions and to try and 
do the work we can to train and attract all those planners under those circumstances. But I do want to say those threats make it even more difficult for us to attract and retain the planners and the skilled workforce that we need to deliver the outcomes that everybody wants to see. So it is certainly the case that when I speak to the Prime Minister, uh, I remind him of his beautiful public home owned formerly by the City of Sydney Council just up the road and the importance of delivering enough housing for him and his mother uh, just as councils are trying to do right across the nation. The planning system here in New South Wales is complex. The planning system across the nation is unbelievably complex. It is truly one of the most complex policy issues uh, that our nation faces and yet we all have to remember the importance of wading through that complexity, trying to find a better way forward, not sacrificing quality, but nevertheless finding a better way forward. Whether de delivering homelessness services, community housing, or supporting affordable social or public housing through the planning processes, local governments as the closest level of the government really do consider people under housing stress and do consider people at risk of or experiencing homelessness. These people should be front of minds when we're considering these kinds of planning proposals. But we need to consider them to also ensure that when people can move into these dwellings, they're livable. They're living in a place where they can access appropriate infrastructure and support services to ensure that it remains a livable place for them and their pet or their family into the future. We have a great deal of work to do, an extraordinary national challenge. Local governments are certainly very much up for the challenge and the work with all our states and territories and commonwealths, and I'm sure uh, finances and many others involved in this industry, but we will certainly start by working with states and territories and the commonwealth to find a workforce that can help us to deliver the outcomes we need as a critical and urgent priority. Thank you. Thanks to both our speakers for stimulating talks. So we just come back up here and um, I'll give you the microphone and you can share it between yourselves. We'll just start off with Joe. Um, As you know, and as you've said, I think 90% um, of housing is in the private sector. And Linda was talking briefly about, towards the end, about social housing, but government doesn't do much of that. Um, you had those figures early on of, um, of what Victoria is aiming to build and what the federal government hopes to see built. And Linda's spoken about um, other pressures in terms of employment. Uh, and there's also the massive infrastructure builds that are going on, and particularly in Victoria. These targets aren't going to be met, are they, Joe? Uh, well, Jerry, that's a very good question, but and I was, I suppose, implying in my speech that it's a massive challenge, which, if things progress the way they appear to be progressing thus far, uh, will possibly not be met. But that's not to say that the need's not urgent, both in the social, um, public um, housing sphere, 
which, as I said, I, I, I didn't deal with, not because it's not important, but simply because you limited me to 15 minutes. And we, we had a subject matter expert as the other speaker. But dealing with, the, dealing with the private sector's responsibility in this area, I would say that un, un, unless there is a totally focused effort at all levels of government, together with industry, and it's done on a systematic, granular, day by day, not trying to govern by announcement, by actually, but by hard work and innovative thought, it, it's not going to be met. It's, it's not going to be met. So the question I posed was not will we meet it, but can we meet it? And, and I have confidence that we can, but not unless we step up our game. I certainly recall when we first signed the housing accord that people approached me for comments saying these are not very ambitious targets. And I certainly do beg to differ, much like Joe. I think they are very ambitious and will be difficult to achieve. I think they are achievable, but I think it will certainly be an enormous challenge and they are more than we have been able to achieve and they are needed. We support the targets, they are reasonable targets and they are in the national interest. How you break that down by local government area is obviously a really critical and challenging task. And one of the things that we have been advocating for across many of the ministerial councils that uh, I have the privilege of sitting on on behalf of local governments is for at the very least perhaps state maps, but better, a national map to consider how all the national targets fit together. So for example, where will our major sources of energy generation and transmission occur? How will you overlay the federal government's biodiversity targets over the top of that? Where would you then place the housing so that you can meet the demands of the housing accord? And then where would you fit our agricultural land so that we can ensure there's enough space for us to all eat and survive? And then of course overlay that with a climate resilience to ensure, for example, that we're not turbocharging development in our coastal areas that simply will be totally uninsurable in the not too distant future. We would like to see this kind of national zoning vision with all levels of government working together so that local governments can understand what it is we're being asked to deliver in line with all of these other national targets. Because ultimately, resolving those national targets in our 537 places is going to be the thing that delivers not just the housing, but all those other targets as well. But we need a place-based vision for how that might occur. Uh, I'm no expert at all. I'm merely an ex-Londoner who moved here about half a century ago. The expectation in Australia seems to be that one should own one's own home. The expectation in London is normally one would rent one's own home because it's cheaper and easier and more manageable for the companies who are managing the large buildings where the residences are to be found. 
Now in Sydney, we have those large buildings, mainly with offices in, which are now becoming less and less populated by offices and will no doubt turn into residences. How do we encourage Australians to live in rental apartments? Well, I, I, the, the short answer to your question is that the style of living multifamily homes, which are prevalent in many parts of the world, in, including London and particularly in the, in the United States, but other European cities as well, is an asset class which is developing in Australia quite rapidly, but it's held back by all kinds of regulatory, taxation, um, regulation issues. And some of them are being worked through. There have been a couple of advances. And um, a number of um, investors, including superannuation funds, are looking at the sector very seriously. So it, it seems to me that whether we think it's desirable or whether we think it's inevitable, that asset class is going to be um, significant I in Australia and many more Australians are going to live in that way either by choice or by necessity. And so the, the, the real question I think is, um, are we going to put into place all of the settings, planning and environmental, financial, taxation, um, I, I, the, the, the list is endless and, and those who are involved in the sector um, are um, actively working with government to see if the impediments, of which there are many, can be removed and as a matter of urgency because there is a critical shortage of rental accommodation. Thank you for the question and thank you for moving here. We're delighted you're here in Sydney. It, I think, comes to a cultural feature of Australia that we are quite used to trying to strive to own our own homes. Uh, I have to say my husband and I, when we f were first lucky enough to buy our own home in the inner city many years ago now, it was probably after about 15 auctions that we lost. So it's kind of this obsession for Australians that I feel and have certainly felt. But if we are to encourage Australians to be long-term renters, then I think it is appropriate that we give them the conditions under which they can securely rent in the long term. And of course, we don't have those conditions at the moment. We don't really allow or have a culture of long-term leases. We, it's very hard to find rental accommodation that allows you to have a pet, for example. It's a totally reasonable proposition that people should be allowed to rent with pets. Uh, these kinds of features of our national rental laws have not lived up to the kinds of excellent rental laws that we've seen in countries that do have a better, stronger culture of longer term renting. So I think that reform is necessary. On your final point about converting office buildings into housing, I do want to say that if I had a dollar for every single person that had called me with that idea, uh, I would be much wealthier than I am. And it does seem on the surface to be such a good solution to some of the problems that we're experiencing. Of course, it comes back though to my concern about the necessity of planning for infrastructure. If we were to suddenly populate Sydney CBD, not only would the building standards 
to speak very bluntly with apologies, Gerard, not be able to handle the kinds of levels of sewerage and a range of other things that we do need to plan for slightly differently in our residential dwellings. But we also don't have the schools and the hospitals and the other important bits of infrastructure to make these places livable. In Green Square, in uh, Sydney, not far from here, 80,000 people have been allowed to um, have property approved. Uh, it was originally zoned for 30,000. It is um, one of the densest parts of Australia and certainly will be once those houses are complete. The City of Sydney has donated a property for a school to the state government for a dollar. Much of the healthcare is delivered in caravans because there's not enough space for hospitals and the other hospitals in the area are absolutely full to the brim. We've had a pretty contentious discussion with the state government, I'm sure you'll have strong views about this, to halve the Moore Park Golf Course to allow for some more public space. If you call the City of Sydney currently to try and book a sporting field, if you're trying to start a cricket team, for example, with young children, there is no space to book a field ever for the future. So the infrastructure is very, very lacking here in Sydney. And if we are to add to the residential population, which I might add as a person, I strongly support that, we must then plan around the infrastructure. Simply retrofitting buildings in some parts of the city is not going to work alone. Yes, uh, thank you for the opportunity to ask a question. The, um, my question is about immigration. The, um, you know, if you're in the hotel business, uh, it's a common sense. If, you know, if it's a fully booked, then you have to stop uh, taking the booking because otherwise you can't expect you know, your guests to turn up and uh, the room will be available. But like a city uh, uh, of, uh, of Sydney and Melbourne is fully booked. I mean, the um, uh, uh, tr public transport is very full. But last year we had like um, uh, two hundred thousand uh, two hundred thousand um, uh, uh, permanent uh, residents, but as well as over uh, two million temporary visa uh, visitors, and that's about the eight thousand new arrivals every day, and they go straight to the uh, to the local housing. But we have like fifty thousand Australia facing homeless every hour. Yes, and. Uh, I, I just don't understand why we can't stop immigration and at least let the supply okay. and, the, and, the, and the demand balanced. So the suggestion is that we pause immigration. Just a brief response, Joe, and then Linda. Well, can I say I don't agree for the reasons... Sorry, I, I don't agree for the, with, with your proposition for the reasons that um, I mentioned in my address. Time's limited, but it's a, it's a different approach. If I can just... Pick up on your analogy, though it's true that if the hotel is full, you don't accept any more guests. But that assumes that the size of the hotel is fixed. And um, we have it within our capacity to build a hotel that's large enough to take in all those who need to book. And that was the subject of my address. And to add to that, during COVID, we did stop. And it, in fact, didn't solve our housing affordability crisis. So it's clear that that lever alone is not sufficient and I would argue, like Joe, also unnecessary. 
Um, yeah, my, my question's directed at the um, uh, widespread suggestion that um, our super funds invest in build to rent. The target rate of return for the average balance fund's about 8%. Add 2% for the cost of maintenance of rental property, you end up at 10%. Average house price in Sydney is a million dollars. That makes the average rent $100,000 a year for the average house. Um, is there any way in which we will ever see um, industry funds uh, forced to invest in rental property? Well, look, I fully declare, and some of you may know that I am, uh, separately from my local government role, the chair of an industry fund, Care Super, and I'm also the deputy president of the Australian Council for Superannuation Investors, AXI, which is the ESG advisor to industry super funds. I don't speak, though, on behalf of and I certainly won't try to speak on behalf of all industry super funds in any capacity. I will say though, my because of my conflict, which I have to manage really actively, I stay uh, absolutely away from any investment decisions where they come to the board about housing for the understandable reasons that you've heard me outline tonight. More broadly though, I mean the duties of a super fund are of course to put members' best financial interest first and uh, unless the federal government changes those duties, then that will be uh, the uh, outcome that all of us trustee directors, of course, need to legally and morally abide by. I think it is the case, though, that under the housing accord, there are discussions happening, I don't think this is very secret, with NIFIC and a range of other agencies to look at that asset class. And whilst I respect and, you know, did the quick maths about averages, in my very limited experience in property finance, it's rarely the case that property finance lives by averages. That's something Joe would know much more about than me. Uh, it tends to be the case that differ wildly on a site-by-site -site basis. And so I suspect, as we've seen with some announcements, CBUS, uh, HESTA, for example, there will be some industry funds who are able to align the member's best financial interest test with the investment test in housing. Indeed, CBUS has their own property agency because it also employs their members where they are doing it very successfully. So I think the industry funds are full of very, very clever people who will look at what they can do. But of course, I believe you know that member's best financial interest test should be retained and that's a very important benchmark for us all to hold. We've got to finish pretty soon. So I've just got a Zoom question here. And a member from uh, Queensland says, um, if you were coming back here in a year and a half or two years, I mean, what, what, what might be able to be done in the immediate to even immediate term? I mean, what, what would be possible? Well, thank you for the invitation, and I'll let you know in two, in two years' time what's happened. I'm, I'm, I was alluding to, to that by, by saying that because, for example, there are plans for five-year targets commencing um, next, next financial year. Um, and that's because there's a lot of lead time and preparation work that needs to be done, and even that's ambitious. The problem is the problem is more urgent than that, which requires all kinds of creative, um, innovative, um, short-term, medium-term and long-term solutions. So um, I, I, if you're asking me 
to list the five things that you know could could ameliorate the problem right here, right now, here at the Sydney Institute or anywhere else. I wouldn't be able to do it, but that's not to say that there aren't some solutions. So to your um, questioner, I think we need to be more ambitious, more creative, uh, more thoughtful about what we can do and some answers will be there. Specifically what they are, um, other, than, um, other than that general statement, I think I need to leave for my next appearance. I was very encouraged to see recently that the state government here in New South Wales is having a conversation with councils about the supply of 15,000 uh, possible apprenticeships across local government in the workforce development areas where we're experiencing really significant shortages. So we're working very hard to get that up and running so that we can ensure we start to address some of those very significant workforce shortages. I hope that some of those problems in the next 12 months will be resolved. I also think that councils will have had the opportunity to have the conversation with our state governments about where those housing targets will be going. Communities will then have a clearer picture of where that density will be starting to occur. We've started some of those conversations down in Piedmont. I was at a community meeting recently. And communities will see the imperative. I think it's important to finish with a conversation I had with one of my local residents in Piermont, who's probably about 70, and as he stood looking at the boards that we had on display full of red, which were basically saying, we're going to massively develop your local area. I said, how do you feel about this as a nervous, you know, councillor standing there? And he turned around and he said, Linda, I'm gonna be dead by the time some of this will be built. I need my children to have a place to live in the future. It's a bit uncomfortable, but I am gonna tell you that I want you to proceed with it. And I think that more and more Australians actually are coming to that view. And I hope that they continue to say that to their local councillors and to their state members and to their federal members, because ultimately the way that Australians vote will actually determine whether or not this thing works or not, whether or not this vision about ensuring that we can build enough housing for our people actually gets off the ground. So that's a key determinant. <laughs> Many thanks. Well, we, had, we could stay here most of the night with questions, but we always have a rule of finishing on time and we're pretty well right on time. So I'd just like to say both to both our speakers, to Joe and Linda, both can very important papers they'll be noticed. And it's been a very, very important and interesting discussion across a range of issues. And you both put a fair bit of work into your work, so uh, into your presentation tonight. So well done, and um, we'd like to have you back in the future. <laughs> but I'm sure there'll be plenty to talk about then. But to Joe and Linda, well done. Thank you. Thank you.